WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Charlie Brigham. We'll be signing off as we always do with a good night and a go blue. So you you slandered belly. Well, uh, good evening. You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. The show is Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. Jim Dwyer is off this evening. And, uh, well, I'm not going to spend too much time on the impeachment business, but uh, obviously today there was uh, the closing arguments. I heard a little bit of this and that. I uh, didn't really pay attention. I've heard quite a bit about the arguments and whatnot. Uh, got some economic news here, and uh, obviously maybe it's appropriate finally to talk a little bit about the Iowa caucuses. Um, I think there was a lot of factual disinformation in this uh, presentation to the country by um, Donald Trump's lawyers. Uh, I think there were a lot of real serious problems about what was really going on here. Um, 
they made it sound like the impeachment had no validity at some point because they kept talking about partisanship. Um, Ken Starr, of all people, uh, called this the era of impeachment, which I don't really think it is. Uh, I just think that Richard Nixon uh, deserved to be impeached, and I think that Donald Trump deserved to be impeached. And as the week went on, I became increasingly alarmed by some of the other really scary concepts and consequences of this uh, whole fiasco. Uh, Notably, the president determines foreign policy. Uh, This is false. Uh, Actually, foreign policy is in the Constitution as a joint power responsibility. Some responsibilities are explicitly listed. Some are implied. I want to give a couple of famous examples from the 20th century in which the president did not determine foreign policy. I'll start out with two examples involving the Democrats and two examples uh, involving the Republicans. The Versailles Treaty uh, was a proposal by Woodrow Wilson. And uh, the Versailles Treaty, of course, was based on his concept of the 14 points that came at the end of World War I. Many nations ratified this treaty, but the United States was not one of them. And that is because the Senate ratifies treaties, and they do so by a two-thirds margin. And that was never attained. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, in fact, made a long speaking tour around the United States to sell the 14 points in the Versailles Treaty to the American people. Uh, Popular opinion was somewhat split, but Woodrow Wilson had uh, huge opposition uh, in the Senate from both Republicans and some what were known as isolationists. Uh, who were Democrats, mainly from Western states. Woodrow Wilson's speaking tour, by the way, uh, contributed to his health problems. Uh, He had a stroke, and it's pretty well established that the last nine months of his presidency, he was relatively disabled, and his wife, for all intents and purposes, along with Colonel House, were running the country. Another example of... uh, the president not determining foreign policy were the neutrality acts in the 1930s. Franklin Roosevelt was opposed to the neutrality acts. And uh, three neutrality acts were passed by Congress in 1935, 1936, 1937. And this coincided, by the way, with the increasing threat of Adolf Hitler The Neutrality Acts prevented, and I'm not going to go into each one, but they generally prevented the United States from trading with belligerents, selling arms uh, to certain belligerent countries. And, of course, this was in the midst of the Spanish Civil War. These Neutrality Acts were passed by veto-proof margins in Congress. Franklin Roosevelt signed the 1935 Neutrality Act because he didn't want to create a campaign uh, issue in the 1936 election. But he publicly opposed the Neutrality Acts as dangerous uh, 
And once again, Congress determined this disastrous foreign policy, not the president. Two other examples come from Republican presidents. One was the Vietnam War. Richard Nixon won the 1972 uh, presidential election in one of the biggest landslides in American history. He won 49 states, got about 59% of the vote. Of course, the Watergate scandal had been successfully covered up by the Nixon administration during the election of 1972 because the actual burglary took place in June of 72. But the cover-up eventually led to the resignation of Richard Nixon. But in the congressional elections of 72, the Senate had reached a firm majority to cut off funding for the Vietnam War. And that's exactly what happened. They forced Richard Nixon to go to the negotiating table in 73 with Henry Kissinger, and Kissinger was the Secretary of State, and he negotiated a uh, peace treaty with Lee Duck To of North Vietnam. And ironically, Henry Kissinger was given the Nobel Peace Prize for this. Lee Duck To refused to accept the peace prize in, in uh, Stockholm uh, because he asserted that there had not been a full peace in Vietnam and that the American military had not actually left Vietnam. Of course, our troops were stationed mainly in South Vietnam, and we bombed North Vietnam uh, pretty regularly. The Christmas bombing of 72, in fact, were some of the heaviest bombing operations of the Vietnam War. And Nixon, of course, pulled this off because he could get away with it. Um, and he was fully aware that funding was going to be cut off when the new Congress was uh, sworn in in 1973. Another final example that I'll cite are the South African sanctions. Ronald Reagan consistently vetoed South African sanctions of the apartheid government in the early 80s, uh, claiming that the ANC was backed by communists and the Soviet Union and yada yada, the usual sort of Red Scare propaganda. And eventually that became a kind of an untenable position. And Congress overrode President Reagan's veto on South African sanctions, and they were eventually imposed. So this notion that the president determines foreign policy no matter what is absurd. Uh, we have a Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We have a House Foreign Relations Committee. In fact, one of the most powerful committees during the Vietnam War was the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, headed by William Fulbright. And they had constant hearings with members of the Pentagon, State Department, NSC, um, McBundy from the National Security, uh, he was the National Security Advisor, and intelligence agencies about what was actually going on in the Vietnam War. Uh, the Johnson administration, of course, was consistently misleading the public, and they were misleading Congress about the progress. William General William Westmoreland was famous for keeping track of body count statistics and would send these statistics up to Congress to show uh, rather poorly educated 
congressman that we were, quote, winning the war because we were winning the body count. Uh, And in fact, if you look at the horrible casualties that were caused by the war in Vietnam uh, and and Cambodia and Laos, uh, the United States killed about 3 million people in Indochina. And of course, we lost roughly 60... 58,000, you know, 922 troops. And uh, the consequences of the Vietnam War we're still living with. Hundreds of thousands of other casualties, by the way. Uh, injuries, wound, uh, woundings, uh, veterans that would lose their legs. Um, horrible stuff, you know, and PTSD and, and that sort of thing. So uh, the assertion that the president always determines foreign policy is just pure nonsense. And I don't even know why it's even being debated. The other really erroneous historical thing that I think I heard quite a bit uh, from the uh, Donald Trump managers were that the impeachment had no validity because it was partisan. That these uh, charges should be... uh, Uh, dismissed, well, not dismissed, but uh, voted down, no removal of Donald Trump. And, of course, he's not going to be removed. This is a kabuki theater event, like uh, so many of our events in American politics. But partisan is not a word that I am aware of that appears anywhere in the Constitution. Um, Our Constitution was written in 1787, And George Washington became our first president. George Washington's birthday, by the way, is the 22nd of February. He was voted in as the first president by, quote, acclamation. And the American political party system developed subsequent to Washington's presidency because he had the wisdom to pick Alexander Hamilton as his Secretary of Treasury, and Thomas Jefferson as his Secretary of State. And, of course, they were political rivals. They had different uh, visions for the United States of America, and that's how the Democratic-slash-Republican Party was created by Jefferson, and the Federalist Party was created by Hamilton. They were the party leaders. Unfortunately... Uh, John Adams was the only actual Federalist that was ever subsequently elected. And Alexander Hamilton, of course, was killed in a duel uh, with Aaron Burr. And that duel emanated and originated from some of the disputes involving the 1800 Electoral College vote uh, that occurred in the House of Representatives that gave the presidency to Thomas Jefferson. Alexander Hamilton took his delegates... And while he was a rival of Jefferson, he disliked Aaron Burr even more. Aaron Burr was a New York uh, politico, and they were rivals in the state of New York. Well, eventually there was bad blood between Burr and Hamilton, and they had a duel in, uh, I believe it was New Jersey, actually. Uh, One uh, sad day, and Alexander Hamilton died from the wounds at the duel. Um, 
And by the way, this is an example of the fact that voters don't pick the president. The Electoral College does. So we heard a lot about the voters uh, today, and it was kind of shocking to listen to uh, the Republican Party, Ken Starr, some of the House managers claim that the sanctity of the uh, voters has to be maintained. Donald Trump can't be removed from office because we have an election in nine months and pay no attention to all these violations that he perpetrated and um, <clears throat> let the voters decide. Well, that's a very interesting um, claim. Uh, it would be nice if the voters did decide. I'd like to remind the House man, uh, the Donald Trump lawyers that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 2.8 million votes. So the voters didn't decide. The Electoral College did. And so that, that argument is completely bogus as well. Um, and then when you actually put it in the context of what's been going on in the United States of America over the last 20 years, John Roberts, uh, who is presiding over the final day of the impeachment, which will be Wednesday when we get to hear some speeches and a final vote, in which Donald Trump will not be removed from office, uh, was the deciding vote in a voting rights case called Shelby. Um, I don't remember the exact year. I want to say 2008. The United States Senate renewed the Voting Rights Act 98 to nothing. 98 to nothing. That's called bipartisanship. John Roberts came in and said uh, with the majority Republicans in the um, Supreme Court that the Voting Rights Act had become obsolete, that there was no evidence that there was discrimination in voting uh, in the South, that uh, poll taxes had been eliminated, and that African Americans could freely register. Uh, I would challenge his factual uh, picture on that matter. And in fact, the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. I just saw a very powerful movie about the Voting Rights Act, by the way, called Selma, a couple weeks ago on Martin Luther King Day. So it was rather bizarre hearing Ken Starr quoting Irving Berlin, Martin Luther King, and a Unitarian minister from the 19th century. I was raised as a Unitarian. And hopefully that got Googled <laughs> so people could figure out what the hell a Unitarian is because the only public figure that's ever really talked about Unitarians much is Garrison Keillor. He used to joke about Unitarians all the time on Prairie Home Companion. And he could joke about Unitarians and Lutherans because the show took place in Minnesota and there's a lot of Lutherans in Minnesota. Uh, and Jews, because those are the three religious groups that he could make fun of without people calling in to demand that he be taken off the air. We are able to laugh at ourselves. We are able to kind of um, take the insults in a, in a humorous way and the stereotypes. Now, of course, the Unitarians were very important in the 19th century, even though they were a relatively small Protestant sect, because they were the first Christian sect to favor abolition of slavery. 
They worked tirelessly in the northern states to abolish slavery. And I might add, in the 20th century, they were in favor of the civil rights movement and were kind of at the cutting edge of the gay rights movement uh, that came much later in our history. So I'm really kind of baffled by the sanctimonious sort of smarmy uh, presentation that Ken Starr made today about the sanctity of voting uh, when it's been so obviously denied over the last 20 years. We've created voting impediments using driver driver's licenses in the state of Michigan. You can't, if you go to Michigan State, you can't vote in your dorm room at East Lansing. You have to go back to your hometown to vote. You're only allowed to vote what your driver's license says. And, of course, we have more and more people that don't have driver's licenses. And getting government ID can be difficult. Uh, Let's never forget, by the way, that many people in the South were not born in hospitals. They did not get birth certificates because the local governments wouldn't issue them. And there are many, many older minority people in this country who do not have birth certificates because the local government wouldn't give them the documentation back in those days. No one disputed their citizenship, by the way, but they were born in houses, log cabins, and in some cases, shacks. You know, the poverty in the uh, southern states uh, during the Great Depression was so remarkable that it took Franklin Roosevelt to intervene with the federal government to start making some progress in our country. You know, one of the interesting things about the Rural Electrification Act, one of the New Deal uh, programs, was that when Franklin Roosevelt started his presidency, 90% of the people in the South did not have electricity. And when his presidency was over, 90% did. I believe it was Harold Ickes who said that was one of the great accomplishments of the New Deal, and it's been uh, omitted from the historical record to some degree. So those old jokes about, you know... (laughs) On the Beverly Hillbillies and Granny Clampett, you know. Well, back in the old days before uh, electricity, you didn't have a refrigerator. (laughs) You didn't have uh, the old electric fan. You didn't have electric lights. And you probably didn't have a flush toilet either. Donald Trump seems to be obsessed with toilets lately on the campaign um, uh, stoop. I'll leave that word alone for the moment. Uh, But if Donald Trump wants to go back to the good old days, I would recommend a song. Don't let him tear that little brown building down. Sears catalog. (laughs) It's an old joke about the outhouses in the South. 
uh, maybe that's the kind of toilet Donald Trump needs because he's obsessed with this low flush, low water flush toilets. He talks about it constantly. Um, so the bipartisanship nonsense that was used in the in the final presentations today really is is irrelevant. Doesn't have anything to do with um, the United States Constitution covering impeachment. And then there was another very bogus presentation, and that was that the quote that the Democrats were were behind impeachment from the beginning. That 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 they were trying to impeach Donald Trump. Uh, before he ever got inaugurated. Well, a, con- a congressional person giving a speech or making an argument in public, on television, on con- on the congressional floor or whatever, uh, was making those arguments because the public was being um, exposed to the fact that Donald Trump's campaign had met Russians during the 2016 campaign 100 times. Don Jr. met Russians at the Trump Tower. Don Sr., the man who's in the White House, Orange Bone Spurs, he uh, publicly advocated that the Russians intervene in the election. The Russian ambassador was at the Republican National Committee in Cleveland. The platform on the Ukraine, by the way, was changed at the Republican National Committee in Cleveland. So um, people were calling for the impeachment, Democratic members of Congress, because they were sort of outraged by the fact that we had been cheated. And of course, there's no remedy uh, for a do-over. There's no mulligan. It's not like golf. I bet Donald Trump takes a lot of mulligans. There's no mulligan available to the uh, system. We don't have a do-over. Um, that's what originated the impeachment debate. And the Republicans, of course, controlled the House of Representatives for Donald Trump's first two years. So trying to suggest that this has been a three-year endless process is just total rubbish. Um, more historical facts that are false. Now, I would argue that the De- the Democratic House managers did succeed in convincing the American public that Donald Trump uh, cheated in the elections, both the 2016 and the 2020. He attempted to cheat. He got caught. So many of the arguments, well, he released the aid. Well, he released the aid after he got caught. They proved their case to, to a great degree, and they certainly moved the public opinion on witnesses. You know, they had a polls that showed 66% favoring witnesses, 71%. The last one was 75%, including almost half the Republicans. So they won that debate. But, of course, we didn't hear any witnesses. Um, Only uh, Mitt Romney and Susan Collins voted to hear more witnesses. So the trial in and of itself has been truncated. But you know what? (laughs) It's going to be a drip, drip, drip. It ain't going to go away. Uh, We got a 420 in progress. Uh, we got Parnass uh, uh, meeting Trump. He's got it on his phone. Uh, we got a 430 in progress. Actually, the 420 in progress is a videotape by Fruman. The 430 in progress is a uh, <clears throat> cell phone tape by Parnass. 
Donald Trump, of course, claims he doesn't know Parnas. Well, he's been indicted, and he is a close friend of Giuliani, and they were working in the Ukraine on political shenanigans. That the ultimate scandal here is that the Ukrainian scandal was sort of a combination of Watergate and the Iran-Contra affair. So the drip, drip, drip will continue. Speaking of drips, uh, how interesting that uh, one of Don Donald J. Trump's uh, pending law, lawsuits uh, has a dress in which uh, DNA is being examined for Donald Trump's DNA. <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know. And hopefully Ken Starr can get back in the impeachment uh, business because that is his forte. But uh, he ultimately came across as a hypocrite, and we won't uh, talk about Alan Dershowitz. The last couple of minutes here, I just wanted to mention that, of course, the Iowa caucuses are tonight. And uh, I think the Iowa caucuses are going to be a bit of a wash. I think that Biden, uh, Sanders, Warren, and probably Buttigieg will all get some delegates. I think that the real question in the Iowa caucuses is going to be who finishes fourth and who finishes fifth. Klobuchar has made a little move in the last two months. As much as she's gone up, I've noticed that Elizabeth Warren has gone down. So that strikes me as sort of a uh, uh, kind of a faction. Alexander Hamilton did talk about factions, not partisanship. Factions. Um, that's a faction of the Democratic constituency that may well move. If Amy Klobuchar um, finishes fifth, I fail to see the rationale for why she, why she should stay in the race. She's got a lot of appealing qualities, but she may face reality and go back to her job of being in the United States Senate. So it might be interesting to see who drops out. I think the guy that's got the most writing on the primaries is Buttigieg. Clearly, Sanders, Warren, and Biden are going to live on to fight another day. And Bloomberg, of course, is buying up TV ads. He had a TV ad in the Super Bowl last night. He's just dismissing the first four contests and going for Super Tuesday, hopes to win delegates, hopes to go to a brokered convention. That's his strategy. It's quite clear what he's doing. What if Buttigieg finishes fourth uh, when Paul showed him leading two months ago? Well, that might be somewhat problematic. Anyway, um, I guess the only thing that's problematic for me at this point is that I got to cut off the show and turn it over to Yazoo City Calling coming up next here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'd like to thank Andrew for engineering this evening and, uh, Stay tuned. There are 54 countries in Africa, all with a distinctive musical sound that defines their lives. Village music and griot stories loaded with percussion, kora, kalimba, and balafon. WCBN offers music from traditional call and response to contemporary Afrobeat. Drummers in Ghana, Senegal, Burundi, and Nigeria. 
current popular music, South African townships refugees, Fela, King Sunny Ade, Miriam Makiba, so many great singers, big bands with horns and more. Pan African Heartbeat every Sunday, 5 to 6 p.m. on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. Oh,